Podcast. The Gospel according to Matthew was written by a former tax collector who was transformed by the power of Christ. Instead of keeping records for Rome, now he would keep records for God, carefully recording all that Jesus said and did. Matthew references more than 60 Old Testament prophecies, proving Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah. Jesus really is who he claimed to be, our Savior and soon returning King. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. All right, happy church, it's that time to settle down. It'll take a God-sized miracle, but I know you're going to get back to your seats, people. We're going to go to the Lord with a word of prayer for a timely message out of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 18, starting a new chapter in our verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter approach to the Scriptures. That's what we do, line by line, precept upon precept. We get all of the truth to edify our lives and keep us on the straight and narrow path that leads to life and blessing. Amen? Amen. Now, Father, as we look at this simple little incident, these concise, brief words that defines true greatness, the eyes of heaven, We want to aspire to be pleasing to, at the end of our lives, hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And if we listen carefully and put your words into practice, we are guaranteed to have a smile on your face and hear those words of commendation. Well done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you've ever searched for a job, like most people have, you probably had to put together a resume from the French that means to sum it up, right? And what we have to sum up, of course, is a list of our qualifications and our experiences that make us the ideal candidate for the job. In short, why we are so amazing and wonderful. (laughs) And in the world we live in, Everyone expects that list to be amazing, even though we're the ones who wrote it. And so seeking a position where I can combine my vast love of learning and my in-depth knowledge and boundless experience with my genius administration uh, (laughs) abilities, my expert analytical skills, not to mention my continual pursuit of excellence. And I also take pride in the way I can make myself sound so wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Resumes and interviewing for jobs are are not known for candor, are they? (laughs) We don't expect on the list to see, uh, sometimes I can be lazy. (laughs) Uh, I talk too much on occasion. Um, I hate being corrected. I'm not very teachable. Uh, and certain people, certain people just rub me the wrong way, so brace yourself. <laughs> That's not in our cover letter. I don't know why. You know, No, applying for a job, it's all the things that make you amazing. 
But I wonder if we had to put together a resume for the position of servant of the Lord, which every single one of us who knows him is called. I wonder what that resume would look like. Would we try to sell ourselves to the Lord on how accomplished we are? Well, that's exactly what the disciples are up to here in Matthew 18. While God certainly values character qualities and hard work and using our skills to the best of our abilities, I think you would have to agree that the way the world defines greatness and how God defines it, two very different things, which the, uh, the uh, disciples who are very busy at the moment jockeying for position, they're about to find out. The world's all about touting our own achievements and asserting ourselves, self-centered ambition to make a name for ourselves, to rise to the top and all of that, be better than everybody else. Heaven's version, of course, the way we become great is to become small, to become humble and unassuming, not intimidating, like a child. Now, this is timely truth because in the world we live in right now, there's a lot of stress and trouble. The world could use some heroes. The world needs some truly great people right now. Truly awesome, truly amazing, but not in the way the world thinks of greatness in the way that we are naturally inclined to think of greatness. No, quite the opposite. In the upside-down kingdom called the kingdom of heaven, life is a little bit different. And so, yes, men and women who need to inspire hope in others to point people to the truth, to life, men and women who are great in God's sight, and if you've ever wondered what makes someone amazing in Jesus' eyes, then listen closely. Here it is. And as is my custom, sometimes I like to uh, gather some of the little details from the other gospel writers who make it a more full context. And so chapter 18, verse 1, at that time an argument started among the disciples. A fight broke out. And they came to Jesus and asked, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Sitting down, because he probably needed to calm himself. <laughs> Jesus said, if anyone wants to be first, he's got to be last. And the servant of everybody else, he went on. He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he took him in his arms and said, I tell you the truth. Unless you change, and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes a little child like this, in my name, welcomes me. Surprise. <laughs> so, yes, indeed, Jesus knows how to get our attention, doesn't he? And especially when he senses that we're off course, headed for the rocks, to shipwreck our faith. And the 12 are headed precisely in that direction. Are they not? Whenever your life is filled with pride, jealousy, envy, competitive spirits instead of lowly hearts, 
man alive. We're headed for trouble. And so Jesus is going to shock them in a couple ways to get them back on course with some strong words. And then this random dramatic sermon illustration with this young boy, perhaps Peter's son, there at Peter's house. Uh, Yogi Berra, you know, Yogi was his nickname, that famous baseball player, a catcher, manager, coach, uh, most valuable player award three times, but he was really more famous for some of his silly quotes. He would say things that just like, duh, you know, but they'd catch on, like it's not over till it's over, (laughs) you know, that came from him. And he said something else that I like, he said, you know, um, you can observe a lot by just watching. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I'd rather learn from somebody else's embarrassing moment than from my own. So let's observe a lot by walking through this incident and this argument and what Jesus has to say as we watch the 12 do some pretty nasty belly flops, right? So first up here are the verses, the first couple uh, verses there to get us started. Note takers, you can call it the argument. I have written down here the argument inspired by hell. Of course it is. You know why? Because the very first sin in all of creation, the very first sin was pride. And that Lucifer, according to Ezekiel chapter 28, uh, says that he, because of his splendor and his wisdom, and uh, fell in love with himself, his appearance, and, and wasn't happy in his lot in life, and so he wanted uh, to have selfish ambition and take over God's job, as it were. And so, yeah, so the whole idea of self-assertion and all about me, myself and I, really it comes from him. And we are never more like the devil than when we are full of ourselves, uh, one writer said. So here they are. They're jockeying for position. Uh, your, Your verse says, at that time, a fight broke out because we know this has happened. And you guys, it happened in the beginning, it happened in the middle, and it happened right up to the end. At the Last Supper, they're arguing the same thing, even though Jesus has schooled them along the way because that's how deep it goes into human nature. Uh, this kind of self-centered, selfish ambition, comparing ourselves among ourselves, wanting to be better, It's encoded in the fallen genetic code passed on to us from our fallen parents, Adam and Eve. And so let's uh, observe a lot um, by just walking through and watching here. And so, yeah, not a question here uh, uh, for general information. Wouldn't it be nice if they said, hey, what, Jesus, what makes a person great? No, 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 it's a personal question that springs from the ugliest of motives because uh, Mark and Luke have have outed them. It's not a general question. It's a question they want Jesus to settle, the argument that they've been having, which one of us is king disciple? Who's better than the other ones? God, that's what they want to know because it says they were arguing about which one of them. Now, Jesus has been talking about the kingdom is coming, it's close at hand, he's meaning something totally different. 
But talk of the messianic kingdom is stirring up in them this, this concept of Jesus is going to take over and reign on a throne, and where will we fall in the administration? What kind of cabinet positions are for <laughs> us? right? And that's what they're thinking, and they had high hopes for themselves. I'll give you a sad sample here in uh, Mark's Gospel, chapter 10. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going to Jerusalem. Bad news, guys. The Son of Man, speaking of himself, the Messiah, I will be betrayed, condemned to death. They're going to mock me and spit on me and flog me and kill me. Three days later, I will rise. Next breath, then James and John come and say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. Verse 37, they replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left hand when you come. We want to be right there. We know you're number one, but we want number two spot, if that's okay, because we want you to do whatever we ask you to do. And Jesus says, you are out of your minds. (laughs) Verse 38, if we put it in today's speech, he goes, you you guys are clueless. Um, Verse 41, when the other ten hear the gall and chutzpah of James and John, who beat them to the punch, (laughs) they were indignant, resentful, envious, jealousy, and this is how they were all the time. Always dealing with it, you know. And so the fact that the question ever arises gives clear evidence that they hadn't a clue about what serving God and God's kingdom was all about. Totally distant for sure. And you know, their response to Jesus as we go back, thank you, uh, adds insult to injury. Yeah, that's what it does. Because at the same moment he's speaking of his abasement, I'm quoting Charles Spurgeon, they thought of their own advancement. In other words, while he's humbling himself, talking about the cross and suffering, and he, God, is saying, I'm going to have to lay down on a piece of wood that I created. (laughs) They're exalting themselves. He's going low, they're going high. And how rude. On top of that, one writer said, a self-absorbed person is the rudest kind of person of all. They're the most insensitive because their attention is only focused on them, what they need, what they want, how they're perceived and how they're received. They're completely oblivious and blind to the needs of those around them. I'm about to die. I'm going to be suffered. They're going to spin in my face, guys. Hey, what about our promotion? Whoa, 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 whoa. And that's what selfish ambition is all about. Eyes on me, it's not good, not good at all. And so, as I've been saying, they sense that the kingdom is right around the corner, so they want to settle it. 
And we've talked about this before. How did this look? How did this sound? Them vying for position, saying, uh, you know, I'm the greatest one. No, you're not. You know, well, let me tell you, you know, they're just tired of Peter's big fish stories. You know, Peter saying, you know, oh, I threw the net over and all these fish jumped in and all of these stories. He just has another big fish story. The Lord told me to go fishing, and there I was on the banks of the lake there, and I cast in my line, and this fish bit down, and I opened up the mouth, and I saw this gold coin in there, and all of this. And they're just like, Peter, you know what? You're just too much. And then he would say something like, look, the Lord said, blessed are you, Peter, up on the mountaintop. Remember last chapter, fellas, when he said, flesh and blood didn't reveal this, but God revealed this to you, Peter. And then Andrew could say, you know what? He also then called you Satan, right? And that's exactly what (laughs) happened. In the same chapter, Jesus says, the Father just revealed to you something and then said, get behind me, Satan, to Peter's face. And you know the guys were using that as ammo, (laughs) you know? And then you've got James and John, you know, he calls us Sons of Thunder. That's our nickname, you snowflakes, you know? Uh, And then somebody like Philip would have to say, yeah, you know what? And when you were doing your thundering and wanting to call down fire to destroy the Samaritans, he had to, all caps, rebuke you in harsh language. Jesus turned to the sons of thunder and said, what do we even have in common? Yikes. And then Judas cleared his throat. And he said, you know what, you guys? Who does he trust with the money? (laughs) He trusts me with the money. That makes me great. And I bet they kind of believed it. Like, well, who's going to argue with that? Jesus did entrust him with the money sack, which... He helped himself too on several occasions because he was a thief, as I'm quoting the Bible. And so, yeah, ugly, disgraceful. I mean, it's just hard to believe, but that's what we do. We rank ourselves among ourselves, and we want preeminence. It's in our genetic code, as I've been saying. And so we rank everything. (laughs) We compare ourselves among ourselves to find our self-esteem and our worth. That's what human beings, fallen as we are, do. We rank everything and everyone according to socioeconomic terms, status in life, sports, attractiveness, every single topic is up for grabs. Employee of the month, person of the year, sexiest man alive, Miss America, Miss Universe, the strongest man on earth. Award shows for award shows. Every television show, every reality show. The best baker, the best candy maker, the best chef, the best survivor, the best at trivia, the best at losing weight, the best... We just watched this one last night. It was pretty good. We watched watched the best glass blower. And so all of these glass blowers get together, and one by one they're eliminated. It was a pretty good show, uh, you know. 
You've got the most followers. You've got the most likes. You've got the Forbes 500. You've got Michelin stars. If you get three, it means you're the top restaurant in the world. The French Laundry in Yachtville has three stars. And apparently, our governor likes to go there. <laughs> and he doesn't wear a mask when he goes. <laughs> <laughs> but I digress. <laughs> it's in our DNA, folks. We want to know who the goat is. Greatest of all time. The greatest movie of all time. Les Mis with Liam Neeson, if you're wondering. <laughs> the greatest golfer, Jack Nicholas. Come on. Greatest president, Abraham Lincoln. Why? Well, you know, saving the union looks pretty good on your resume, doesn't it? <laughs> I thought so. I struggled between George Washington and him and Ronald Reagan. You know, moving along. <laughs> Greatest ice cream. Come on, I'll tell you right now, don't even say anything. Hagen dazs peanut butter pie. <laughs> now, I've saved the best for last, and I want you to think about this one. Who's the greatest person in this room right now? Jesus. Good answer. That's always the right answer. <laughs> you learned in Sunday school, if I just raise my hand and say Jesus, I, it's, I get a something, you know, a toy or something. But how sick to think Who's the greatest Christian in our home fellowship group? Who's the, the greatest woman at the ladies' Bible study? Who's the greatest one on staff? How ugly it is. We don't really say it, but we do think it from time to time. And we want to be on top. We want to be better even though first, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says this, when we compare ourselves by ourselves, we are foolish. It's irrelevant. Our lives will never be measured about, against anybody else, but against what God had for us and how faithful we were uh, to him. Greatest person in the room? Here's the answer according to Jesus. The most humble the most unassuming, the one who's most gentle and meek, the one who serves the best, who complains the least, the least intimidating, the most accommodating, the smallest ego, who's best submitted and wholly dependent and fully trusting the Lord. That person, from heaven's point of view, is amazing. And to Jesus' point, some of these qualities can be seen in an unspoiled five-year-old. You see, not rocket science, but somehow seems just as complicated and difficult to obtain. So the next slide. Now as we continue on, the argument, proud and divisive, 
uh, the question, self-serving and sinful, nasty too. And now for the answer in the truth note takers, we wrap up with these thoughts here. The truth will always set your heart free. And so, wow, if ever there was a time for us in, in, the, in these days, troubled times in which we live, to be free from that tyranny of pride and exerting ourselves and retaliating and being angry and hateful and up in arms and rude and short, not qualities, Jesus says, is great at all. He says, that doesn't make you great. It makes you ordinary, run-of-the-mill, just like everybody else. That's how they react in this world. But what about you? He says, my people, come on, what do you do? Question from Jesus, quoting. What do you do that's different from the next guy who doesn't even believe in God? You love those who love you, check. That's what they do. How about loving people who are nasty and obnoxious and are your enemies? They don't do that. You want to be great and like God and be amazing? Then do something different than what's run-of-the-mill out there. Everybody gets up in arms. Everybody gets uh, angry, short, and rude, and resentful, and then blows off steam. That's what everybody does. But my people, they live peaceful, quiet lives. They're demure in nature. They're soft-spoken. They're loving. They're kind. These are the qualities that can be found, some of them in a five-year-old, but Jesus is going to be very specific about what he wants us to emulate in a child. We certainly don't emulate a lot of what's in a child. In fact, he tells us to run the other way from that kind of behavior, as we'll see shortly. But he picks up a five-year-old or a six-year-old, whatever, maybe a four-year-old, and uh, says, this is what it's all about. There's something in this little boy... Uh, that has the true essence of what heaven thinks is amazing. And so it's going to be shocking what he says here. Two different things he does here. Uh, first of all, get this, and I love this. They ask him, here's the question, which one of us is greatest? We're waiting for a name, Jesus. Our chests are out, our eyes are flashing, our, our, our jaws clenched, our egos are fully inflated. We want a name. Settle it once and for all. Which one, Jesus, is king disciple? And Jesus doesn't answer directly here. He proposes a different kind of question for them to ponder. Here's how he answers. He says, instead of wondering who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven, maybe you should be wondering if you're going to be there in the first place. (laughs) That's what he says. Because unless you have humility, you're not going. So he pulls the rug out from under them. They're shocked. They're like, oh, we wanted to know who was great, and you're telling us, you know, if we don't watch it, maybe we're not even going to be there. So why not focus on what really matters? And humility, humility doesn't save anybody. It just puts you in the right posture so that you're able to see the greatness of Jesus and the greatness of your sin and your need and your helplessness, humility will do that. And then you're able to fully trust in Jesus, and that's what humility will do for you. Shocker number two, the cultural mindset of children in the first century under the Roman Empire, 
They're insignificant. They're without status. They're not important. Yes, of course they loved their kid, but they had no rights or no significance. They were nobodies. They were the incidentals in the room, right? It's a little different from contemporary Western society. And writers and commentators commented that uh, we tend to kind of exalt uh, children a little bit uh, in an excessive and unhealthy way, so we sort of miss the drama of this statement. But what Jesus is getting at is that this is a quality, the insignificance, the without status, the, the dependence, the humble situation that they find themselves in by virtue of being a child. Not because they're manifesting some quality that we're supposed to emulate. He says, whoever humbles themselves, get this, whoever humbles themselves as this little child is humble in a humble situation. The, the thing isn't whoever humbles himself like this child is humbling themselves. No. We're not supposed to imitate uh, the qualities of childish. I think to understand childlike faith, I think that we don't understand it, and many really have the wrong idea. They think being childlike in faith means you don't think deeply, you don't confront uh, things that are wrong, you don't have profound exchanges about theology, uh, you're not courageous or ambitious for the things of God. All wrong, all wrong, 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 wrong. There's a difference between a childlike quality that Jesus is going to specify. This is what I'm talking about. Their dependence, their innocence, their humility. Not childishness that we need to run from and leave behind. Uh, kids can be self-centered and throw temper tantrums and have a... The heart of a child is bound up with folly, you see? And so we're not supposed to be walking around like timid, little, like out-of-it little kids without any drive or umph to our lives or deep thinking or hard, challenging uh, situations. No. Ch check this out, Ephesians 4. We must all become mature in the Lord, then we'll no longer be immature like children. <laughs> we don't want you to be children regarding your faith who are tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching because those who are childlike, in, childish in their faith, they can't discern truth from error. And so whatever the pastor says, even if it's crazy and he starts going left or he starts becoming progressive or he, he starts becoming politically correct, they don't care because childlike faith, yeah, no, 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 no. Not supposed to be childish in your faith. Somebody at the men's uh, breakfast came up to me and said, I'm here because my pastor went left in his theology. He started wanting to be politically correct and he brought in this whole liberation theology. He did a little research. He didn't even have to. He said, that was the last straw for me. I want the gospel. I want the word of God. I want the truth. I want him to stay focused on what God has called the pastor to do. Feed the sheep, equip the church. <laughs> he wasn't a child in his faith. He was a full-grown man. And then in childlike 
innocence, he made his decisions and made his move. And so, yeah, one more thing I want to show you there. 1 Corinthians 14. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. (laughs) In regard to evil, you're going to be babies and childlike. Because little kids, they're not into all of the evil things in this world. A nice, well-adjusted five-year-old. Oh, man, just to be in that brain that's free and naive in the blessed way, innocent. That's what he's saying there. And so that's the kind of thing we're, we're drawn to. The other things we can do without people, right? So adult faith to do God's will, childlike trusting and dependence on God. Adult courage to slay the beasts out there, overcome evil, stand for truth, but childlike meekness in the way we go about it. Adult maturity, to be wise as a servant. Childlike innocence, to be harmless as doves. And so, yeah, a lot to think about for sure. And so he says, unless you change and turn and be converted, that the most people are like, I'll give you the shirt off my back. I'm basically a good person. Uh, I've, you know, if you look at their resume, you see a list of accomplishments. And until uh, that is rubbish, and you understand in humility that you're um, totally depraved and ruined spiritually and have nothing good to offer God morally because of our own sin and falling short of his glory until that happens until you're changed the word means turned converted to understand not a self-loathing so much as a loving of grace and an understanding of how helpless and hopeless we are that's why jesus says blessed are the poor in spirit you're broken. You're messed up. You, you realize that, you, but you're blessed. Why? Because in your brokenness and the poverty of your spirit, which means humility, you're going to come and find life through him. But if you're not like that and you feel good about yourself, and I'm a great kind of guy, oh, who needs Jesus, right? So he says, blessed are they that mourn. You're grieved. You're, you, you, the way you've hurt God and lived your own life and hurt others and sin before God, and do the wrong thing. Blessed are the meek, because they inherit the earth. The turn the other cheek guys, they're the ones left standing. Those are the ones you'll see in heaven, those who went the extra mile, who prayed for their enemies. Those are the kinds of things that make us great. And so, yeah, children are humble by virtue of being children. They're stuck. That's who they are. They're dependent on every little thing. And here's the deal. Here's what Jesus is saying. I want you to see the greatness of somebody who knows they're always, they always have to be led. And here's what Romans says. Chapter 8, verse 14. All who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. Those who are out leading their their own lives, they don't know the Lord because they're doing their own thing. They're the masters of their own destinies. They're the captain of their own ship. But a kid knows he doesn't go anywhere without mom and dad. Mom and dad has to take him somewhere. 
direct him. And so the greatness of the humble circumstances of a child is total dependence, knowing it, accepting it, embracing it, and loving it, and submitted to it. That's what makes a great Christian. And so, yeah, on the outside of heaven's gates are the world's version of greatness. You know, the wealthy who came out that wealth at the expense of God. Now, the one thing about being great for God is you can be great for God even as a celebrity, as a wealthy person, as a politician, because it's not against those things. He's not saying you can't aspire to great things. If God makes you a famous baseball player, live for him. But the way that you can become great is your mindset, your attitude, the worldview you bring to life in your sphere of influence can still make you great. So he's not against people who have large platforms or lots of money or big influence or lots of talents and all of that. That's not what he's saying. Well, that's bad. No, he's saying the attitude in that unassuming, self-effacing, glory to God pointing to humility, gentleness, unassuming nature, all of that. That's what makes you amazing. Tim Keller said this, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. <laughs> Love it. Which brings up two examples of our Jesus being great. He's amazing, and he has what that boy has, that unassuming, beautiful, serving, kind of submitted thing. Let me show you first thing what I'm talking about with dirty feet in John 13. They get to the Last Supper. They've been arguing who's greatest still, it says before this. So nobody wants to wash the feet. The servant has gone missing. And so if they wash the feet, which they had to do because the feet are elevated, you don't eat with dirty feet elevated in everybody's faces. So nobody will admit it. And they're all sitting there, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to do it. So Jesus, who is God in a body, is going to say, well, I'll do it. Let me get my apron on. Let me pour the water, get the soapy suds, and let me get down on my knees in front of your dirty feet, and I'll wash them gladly. After he washes their feet, he puts on his robe again, sits down and says, do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord. You're right, because that's who I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. He's not saying literally, necessarily there. He's saying you ought to be, nothing should be beneath you since it's not beneath me, and I'm the servant of all. And I'm God. If it wasn't beneath me to do the job nobody else wanted to do, to admit, okay, I'm the lowest in the room, I guess i got to wash the feet. If I was okay with that and I'm your master and you're my slave, then how could anything I ask you to do be beneath you? Now is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message? Come on. Now that you know these things, God will bless you for doing them. 
And then talk about becoming a nobody. Man, Philippians chapter 2. Don't be self-centered, self-absorbed. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others is better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. (laughs) You must have the same attitude that Jesus had because Jesus did all of that. Though he was equal to God, verse 6, he didn't use the fact that he's God in a human body to his own advantage. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble road, the position of a slave. He was born a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself. That word means to make yourself low to the ground. In obedience to God the Father, God the Son comes under and dies a criminal death on the cross. I just want you to imagine that it's God. The second person of the Godhead in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word, who was God, was made flesh and blood and dwelled among us. By his word, all things were created. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 says, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9 says, He is the fullness of God in human form. And he says, No problem, you can strip me. I'll be a servant. I'll be your slave. You know what you need? It's not what I need. That's what you guys need. And the washing the feet was a kind of a shadowy, prophetic picture of what he was going to do later by washing our dirty souls, our spirits, by his death, by becoming a servant, a slave. And so when I look at that cross and know that that's God, and he's willing to do that, I mean, are the dishes that big of a deal? Is it that hard to say, hey, you know, I'm sorry for my part in the whole mess? Is it, is it that hard to lay down my rights if he did? And I call him my Lord? You see, that's what he's asking for. If we stay focused on who he is and what he did for us, then there'll never be a proud, self-asserting cell in our body. It will immediately vanish. Thank you for that. We can close up with uh, verse 5 now. If you want to know if you get it, this is the litmus test. You value humility in your own heart and life, and you value humbleness when you see it in front of you. Now, the world looks at the ordinary, plain Jane, kind of maybe a disabled, socially awkward um, lackluster person and they look past them. They couldn't be bothered. They're not worth their time or trouble. They're not valuable because they don't bring anything. By associating with that person, it brings no <laughs> nothing. It doesn't make others think, wow, you're friends with that person and so why bother? I get nothing out of this exchange so I'm going to look over you. I've sized you up. I put you down here and you know, next... <laughs> He says, no, when you value it in you, you see it in others and you embrace it. And, and here's some motivation, folks. 
Whoever embraces the lackluster, the ordinary, the humble, little childlike. Now, little child is going to morph into little young believers, adult believers who are humble uh, in their faith or maybe new to their faith. So it includes now Christians who are in the world sight insignificant. So he says, listen, and here's the deal with Jesus. He takes things personally. He really does. And this is, if you get this, it'll change how you treat people. Acts chapter 9, he pulls Saul aside, as it were, and he says, Saul, Saul, what's your problem with me? Why are you persecuting me? (laughs) And Saul says, like, who are you? I'm persecuting your people. I don't even know who you are. And he goes, oh, that's the thing. My spirit is in them, and I take how you're treating them personally. Actually, you're treating me that way. Wow. And then in Matthew chapter 25, at the end of the tribulation, Jesus sorts out the nations. It's called the sheep and the goat judgment. And so he says to the sheep on his right, hey, I got some big time reward for you. I just want to thank you so much because during the last days here on earth, I was uh, without clothes. You brought me clothes. Remember that time I was in prison? You visited me. I was dying of thirst and starving and you saved the day. Oh, I want to thank you for that. Here's your reward. And they go, "Uh, excuse me? Uh, Lord... (laughs) When did we ever see you on earth and and visit you and do anything good for you? And he says, oh, when you did it to the least, the most insignificant Christian because of me, you did it to me. I received that personally, and now I'd like to commend you for it and reward you for doing it for me, not for them. Conversely, to the goats on the left, to those who stand condemned, he says, you know what, guys, listen. I didn't have any clothes. You had clothes, you didn't come and help me. I was in prison, you didn't visit me. I was dying for some water. You didn't bring me any water. When did we ever see you anywhere on the earth? Oh, when you didn't do it to the least most insignificant Christian. You didn't do it to me. Your offense is against me because I take things personally and you didn't do it for me. There's a story about these czars of Russia back in the day when they were filling out their cabinets, their administrative posts. They used to dress up and disguise themselves and go out into public with various different situations, depending on who they were looking for. And sometimes if they wanted a compassionate person, they would be beggars. And they would just be begging for water or for for food. And then there's the story of this one guy who stopped and and talked with them, and him, and was uh, compassionate, fed him, offered him shelter, in his house, humble little house. And so the next couple days, the royal chariots pull out, and out comes the czar in all his glory. And he says, hey, man, I got a place for you in my palace. And he goes, what? What's going on? He goes, I was the beggar. I was the beggar. 
You did that for me. You see? And other times they would go out and they'd say, hey, what do you think about the government? What do you think about the czar? You know? And totally disguised. And then he'd hear some pretty good things. Well, maybe I don't agree with him, but I pray for him every day because, you know, whatever. Those are the ways he vetted and our God is doing the same kind of thing. He will, according to the Bible, fill administrative roles in the world to come based on our behavior and our faithfulness here. That is Bible. So the next time you see that person you know is a believer, you must see the face of Jesus. You must think, I am doing this unto you or not doing it unto him. It will make all the difference in the world. Amen? Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for your love and for your patience. God, we are most convicted by this, both in our own character qualities and in how we receive others of lowly status. Don't change our hearts, God. Keep us in focus. We want to do the right thing. We, We hear the truth that rings true in our hearts we long to please you and be set free from this the wrong way of living it doesn't make anybody great or helpful we want to be great we want to be awesome for you god so help us to make sense of this and put it into practice in christ's name we pray amen you've been listening to the rocks podcast Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.